Hello, you're listening to Wine Blast, the podcast that brings wine to life with a smile. On which note, we are going to dive right in today to Burgundy. Yeah, how exciting. Hello. Um, Just so we don't forget the introductions, um, I'm Peter Richards and I'm here with my wife and fellow Master of Wine, Susie Barry. Uh, And we've got not just one, but two episodes on this most hallowed of wine turf, haven't we? We have indeed. We've Mm. got a a brilliant double header coming up. Um, So in this one, we're talking to renowned Burgundy expert Jasper Morris, Mm. as well as taking a look at the 2019 vintage, which is the one being sold at the moment as part of Burgundy's uh, annual En Primeur campaign. Uh, we also have an interview with Rebecca Palmer of Corny and Barrow, mm. who are the agents for world-renowned Domaine de la Romani Conti, amongst others. Yeah, and then in the next episode, um, we have the, the, the thinking man's winemaker, I'd say, <laughs> Mounir Sauma of the Burgundian micro-negos Lucien Lemoyne. He's on the slightly show. crazy, isn't he? He's brilliant, inspired. <laughs> uh, we'll also be airing some of your views on Burgundy from the... Uh, Hilarious, hilarious <laughs> to the lyrical, I think would be a fair way of describing it. Uh, and doing a fascinating tasting of Burgundy wines uh, with what may or may not be controversial, but, you know, I'd say certainly intriguing results. I, I think controversial has to be there, doesn't it? That's what everybody's <laughs> listening for, surely. Anyway, so fasten your seatbelts because this is a big old deep dive into Burgundy um, over the course of the next two episodes. We are going to be addressing a whole range of topics including climate change, pricing, mm. uh, where to find value, um, the alternatives to Burgundy, the hospice to bone, a uh, whole bunch whole bunch fermentation, historic wines, old school winemaking, the new generation, organics, biodynamics, corporate ownership and much more. Is there much, much more? more? There isn't anything I'm not else, sure there's there? any more to bit, go on. You've kind of exhausted the... Uh, <laughs> well done. Uh, that's a good listing. Um, so I, what about a little clip? to get the ball rolling, okay? And I think I've got just the one. Nobody knows Burgundy. Nobody can in one life know Burgundy. When you talk with a grower of Puligny, you tell him, what do you think about Chassani Kairé? He will answer, I'm from Puligny. Nobody can pretend to know Burgundy. And the more you learn, the more you are confused, the less you understand. <laughs> but it's an entire life and we are lucky that we love Burgundy and we can we can taste Burgundy and we can still learn about Burgundy. It's an entire life. More on that in due course. But for now, <laughs> it's safe to say that Burgundy, Burgundy remains possibly, I would say, the most iconic, mm-hmm. the most discussed, um, the most loved, but also the most hated, mm-hmm. uh, the most archetypal wine region in the world, making some of the finest, most expensive wines on the planet. Mm. And the odd good value one too yeah, the odd good which value. we are constantly on the lookout for <laughs> everything's relative yeah so we wanted to get an expert overview on all of this overview being being the the key word there really so we turn to jasper morris you know fellow master of wine um actually fellow hampshire resident um although until only until recently wasn't it because i think he's he moved was, now yeah. full-time yeah. to burgundy but i think before he was between not? the two places yeah both beautiful places yeah um but he was in a past lifetime a very successful wine merchant with with a fine line in burgundy i think it's fair to say yeah. but he's now retired 
from all that malarkey, hasn't he? Um, well, he hasn't retired. He's retired from that. He's retired from the selling. He still works ridiculously hard. Uh, ridiculously hard, talking, tasting, writing, um, pretty much everything else about Burgundy. So his book, Inside Burgundy, is not only extremely substantial, it's also, I think, a classic. Oh, it's definitely it's a classic. And he's actually, um, he's, well, as we know, he's, he's going to be um, re Yeah, he's doing a new edition this new year. New edition, yeah. Um, this year. In but September. it came out in 2010 first time. Um, and his website uh, of the same name, Inside Burgundy, features a, a, a treasure trove, as we can say, having oh, goodness, dived yeah. into it, yeah. of information uh, and I insight I mean, if you want to Burgundy. know about Burgundy, Jasper's your man, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. So he's incredibly active and engaged. So who better, you know, to give us the lowdown on Burgundy in 2021? Absolutely. But before we start this interview, which does go into, it does go into quite a bit of detail, mm. I think it might be good to clarify just some of the terminology. Yeah, good point, good think? point. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, where to start? So things, well, things like en primeur, what, en primeur. Does, what does en primeur mean? Exactly, good question. Oh, it's a French term, it means future sales, futures. So you buy the wines before they're actually finished, put in bottle and sale. Normally you go into a wine shop, buy a wine, it's finished. This yeah. time with fine wine regions, they get you to buy it before it's finished, so they've got your money. Um, but the idea is you get you get it in advance of everyone else. So and with Burgundy, you know, it's such short stock sometimes, it's quite hard to get these wines once they've been if we if we look at it this way, it's a way of potentially securing a better price. But I think with Burgundy, it's more about just securing the, securing wine. the wine. Yeah, so that's on primo. So and it happens every year. Ospice de Bone, Mr. Richards, because yeah. you've been there, haven't Ospice you? And bone, done yeah, the, the Ospice, uh, which uh, Jasper's involved with. Uh, it's a wonderful place. It's, it's one of the world's most, I'd say, uh, iconic wine auctions. Certainly one of the oldest. Um, it dates back, I think, to about eighteen fifty-nine or something like that. It was the first one in its current form. Um, so it's a wine auction. It's a wine auction in Burgundy, selling off the new vintage. Happens in November every year, apart from this year. Um, and they, they auction off barrels of wine. Now, interesting, the way it works is the, the Ospice was part of the, well, the Hotel Dieu was where sick people in Burgundy were taken care of. And Which you can still did, visit now, you can still, you? It's that beautiful, yeah. iconic beautiful, beautiful. Bit of, uh, building and bone. Like museum, um, yeah. And what happened over the years, pious people um, donated um, plots of land, plots of vineyard to the Ospice so that people could then auction the wine off for the benefit of... That's quite of... something, isn't it? You know, yeah, because it... land in Burgundy is I know. Is, um, so over the years, very you know, expensive. they've accumulated this, the, some amazing parcels of land. And what happens is this wine is made at the... the there's an Ospice winery. They make the wine there. Um, Ludivine is the winemaker at the moment. And then individual um, negociants or winemakers then take that, age it, um, and sell it as an Ospice wine. So, so the, the money... Donated by buying the barrels goes to, goes, to, goes to charity. Brilliant. Well, so on more of a, a more of wine making mm. terminology, um, we talk in the interview about Brett. Yeah. So that's quite just worthy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, worth, it's a yeast. Uh, so it's, it's Brettanomyces. Brettanomyces, exactly. It's a kind of yeast that can flourish in some wine styles, particularly in red, particularly barrel aged reds, particularly ones that have done malolactic. Um, and it can give aromas of. If you smell a wine, you think it smells <laughs> like what would you say? Sort of farmyards, farmyards, um, horse kind of poo, horse manure. <laughs> Your, uh, sweaty saddles. It's not bad. Can also it's not be clovey bad. or smoky yeah. as well. Yeah. There are different forms of Brett, um, but it is a yeast that can flourish in some wine styles. Um, some people describe it as a fault. What it can do is dry out the tannins and strip the wine of fruit. If you get a wine that's yeah. riddled with it, that can be horrible. But having actually a tiny said bit that, a little bit of Brett, and people have different tolerances to it, it don't but they? But I think generally people in the winemaking world see it as as something to be avoided. Avoided, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So sulphur is slightly um, the opposite of that, and um, sulphur is mm. protective, isn't it? It is. Well, we should probably talk of sulfur dioxide which is what winemakers use to, to protect it's used as a as a, a, a 
Cleaning agent sounds wrong. It's, yeah, it just keeps wine fresh and healthy, basically, and it and kills it all manner used, of nasties. It can be used in the winery. It can be used in the in the vineyard. Yeah, um, I mean, it's got a bad name. People think uh, it, it's an allergen. Well, it is an allergen, and it can make, especially if you've got asthma, it can make uh, cause extreme allergic reactions. But generally speaking, it's a good thing. Very few of us have se- severe allergic reactions to it. It tends to get blamed for a lot of stuff. It probably isn't uh, culpable for. Uh, but generally speaking, it's a very useful tool for the winemaker to keep a wine fresh and, and healthy. But in and when we talk about sulfur we talk about you know levels of sulfur you know some mm. people overuse it some people don't want to use it at all so it's, it's an interesting one sulfur um, and yeah. whole bunch is yeah. very topical at the moment in yeah. burgundy really topical so this is to do with red wines and using all the stems and um well yeah the stems mm. uh, the, the trunk or whatever of the of the bunch as well as the grapes mm. Mm. why would somebody do that yeah i mean opinions divided um, some people think it, it adds kind of harsh tannins. I mean, you know, if you ever try biting into a, a yeah. bunch of the stem of a bunch of grapes, it can be quite quite uh, astringent and, and tannic. So the people say it adds green flavours. It can be astringent. It can actually strip out colour. It actually raises the pH in, 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 in a funny way. So, it, so it, that it, would slightly lower the acidity. But on the plus side, people say it can actually make the tannins more grippy and it can make more ar- interesting aromatics. It can almost make the wines taste fresher and more engaging. Even in a funny though way. it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because even though the acidity is slightly lowered, the, the freshness and the spiciness of the wine can be um, elevated. Yeah. It does so, seem in the right hands yeah. to be able and to also add people, some really interesting Some people use partial whole bunch ferment. I think that's so the way that, most people go about it, you know, know, a proportion of, of certain things. Yeah. And it depends on how ripe the stems are, but Pinot Noir does seem to, to work very well with stems in a way that, for example, uh, I don't know, Cabernet Sauvignon doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's there's a lot of, it, 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 it's quite mm. a, an on-trend topic. Mm. Uh, Passe tout grain which yes. yeah, gets talked about. Yeah, I think we, we sort of explain it, don't we? But um, It's very simple, really. It's just a blend of, um, of of Pinot Noir with Gamay. I think it's minimum 30% Pinot Noir. But yeah. Um, yeah, Burgundian winemakers use it as a kind of fresh, fun, everyday wine, yeah. uh, which so, Pinot so is blended with Gamay. All, Gamay, obviously, the grape from, just from to say, Beaujolais. All, yeah, yeah, Gamay from Beaujolais. All the top Pinot Noir, uh, sorry, Burgundian reds would be 100% Pinot Noir, but um, Pastoucrin is just a, a different style, isn't mm, it? And mm. it's it's not what you describe as one of the top um, Burgundian yeah, reds. Yeah. Uh, and finally, I think Robert Parker crops he does up, get doesn't he? Which doesn't I'm, he? Sure, I'm sure yeah. he's a name that most of our I listeners will be familiar will with. Him. Obviously, very famous, very influential uh, American wine critic in his day, um, covered a lot of the world, mainly specialised, I think it's fair to say, in, in Bordeaux, but did cover all the world. Was I think there are attitudes towards him that are ambivalent, let's put it that way. He certainly was accused of favouring a certain wine style which was quite big and ripe and juicy um, and powerful and I think what we've seen since him he's, he's subsequently retired and I think the wine world has kind of reacted against he was accused of, of making you know the flavours very standardised people tried to please his palate um, and, but now I think the wine world is a much more heterogeneous place uh, after he's retired and that's probably not a bad thing Okay, so uh, so moving on to to Jasper. Now, I began by asking Jasper what the atmosphere was like in Burgundy, given now is the traditional time when Burgundy growers, they would all come to London to show their latest vintage, which, um, as we've said, is the 2019. But of course, none of the growers, none of the winemakers can come over um, because because of the pandemic lockdown. So uh, so what did what did Jasper think of that? Well, oddly enough, it doesn't feel much different from usual insofar as that it's a rural community. Uh, so everybody can get out and about. Even in the first lockdown, people were able to get out and work in their vineyards. There have been a few cases of COVID, but uh, actually it's building in our Cape Door department. We're probably about to be put on a, a 6 p.m. curfew as from this weekend. 
but it's much more in the towns. And so the producers themselves are not really feeling it. Uh, they're sorry they can't come to London and do the rest of the travel, but they can do the essential work. And are they, are they worried about, um, given they're not going to be able to show their wines um, and have them tasted by as many people as normal, are, are they worried about sales or, or do they feel that that's, that's not going to be a problem? I, I mean, frankly, Brexit is more of a problem in that area, I suspect, than uh, um, COVID is. Um, but uh, yes, sure, they would love to be in London. Uh, many of them have sent samples to the leading um, um, uh, UK importers. And uh, some, some don't want to do that. I mean, it, it's, it's pretty tricky um, sending out samples of unbottled wines. If they can travel with them to be there at the tasting, that's fine. If they're pouring out of the full bottle and can verify each bottle, that's fine. Once it gets divided into small samples, I think it's a little bit tricky, but a number of them have been happy to do that. And the importers have clearly worked really hard on this and they've developed their own communications, their own Zoom shows. And uh, I think they're actually finding uh, a good response from it. Now, now, one of the the potential casualties um, of COVID last year was the was the famous Ospice de Bone annual wine auction, and um, which I believe had to be postponed. But it, I mean, it did take place eventually a few weeks late, uh, and it raised over fourteen million euros, the second highest yes. total ever, um, yes. with with the donations going to the French hospital workers. Now you're involved, you work with Christie's to promote the, the auction wines. Right. How important do you think it was that the auction took place in 2020? Oh, I, I think very important. I mean, I put it behind me now, but it really was a, a, a desperate moment because it had been on again, off again, on again, off again. And it was supposed to take place on Sunday the 15th of November. And there have been discussions all the way through. And at 7 p.m. on the Saturday, it was cancelled or at least postponed. Now, understandably, some people in Bone and the commerce of Bone wanted it not to happen until they could open their shops and restaurants and take advantage of the big sort of tourism effect of the auction. But frankly, and it's even more clear now, that just isn't going to happen for the months to come. Uh, and so fortunately, uh, another viewpoint prevailed and it was held before Christmas, when we still had the original bids in place, people didn't remove their bids. We actually gained a few extra ones out of solidarity for the increasingly difficult times. And as always, we never know on the day before, at the very beginning of the auction, which way it's gonna go. And we were so thrilled that that solidarity was there and we got such a good result, admittedly for really good wines in 2020. And, and and just tell us, you know, you know more about this, where the money goes to that's raised in, in the in the auction. Well, apart from the single very special barrel called the PS, the piece of the president, the barrel of the president, uh, which goes to a separate nominated charity, 100 percent. The rest of it goes to the uh, Hospice de Bone, which is a little bit of museum, a little bit of vineyards. But the key is actually the hospital of Bone and three surrounding towns, also their hospitals. And it enables them to build a new wing for the hospital to bring in some uh, special scanning equipment or whatever it might be uh, and it's all uh, it's a sort of municipal project if you like but it is incredible the support that we get for it. Now moving on to the 2019 vintage which is the one being sold now on Primeur um, I know it's considered a very good vintage um, but also quite surprising um, I, I know the words baffling bemusing have been used even for the producers and um, because it was very dry and hot and yes. yet the wines are showing this 
amazing freshness and purity along with their sort of concentration and richness. And what's what's your take on it? You know, why might that be? I liked your bewitched, uh, bothered and bewildered. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, I mean, 2018 is the turning point. Before that, we had a number of very warm vintages, which were mostly very well received. Maybe not 2003, but 05, 9, 15, all very well received. And then 18, it just felt different because for the first time, uh, things could go clearly too far. But if you were able to pick at the right moment, and that remains the debate, is choosing that moment, then you could make some spectacular wines. So and, 18 caught this me is, a little bit by surprise. Do, and 19, this is to do with climate change. This do entirely, yes, yeah. yes. Uh, so 2019, um, on the whole, worked a lot better than 2018. It's not quite uniform for everybody. It was a pretty good white wine vintage. And we know that the Chardonnay grape, Burgundy's white grape, works pretty well throughout the world at quite a range of temperatures and alcohol levels. So you can get some great California Chardonnay, for example, or Australian, which are pushing up towards 15%. So it's not so much of a worry if you're getting the 14, 14 and a half in Burgundy. Pinot Noir typically has not liked this. And uh, so everybody gets a lot more frightened. But actually 2019 has proved to be more of a red vintage than a white. There are some failures, but there are some utterly gorgeous wines, admittedly in a rich and succulent, but still very pure style. Some people will prefer things which are a little bit more angular, a little bit more restrained. And so maybe that's not their vintage, but nonetheless, it is super succulent, some purists and uh, various other <laughs> S <laughs> descriptors. It's really good. Yeah. Now, um, however good it is, we, we all know how eye-wateringly expensive um, a lot of the wines uh, can be in Burgundy now and beyond the budget of, yes. of most of us. Um, but is there, is there a village or, or a commune that you would single out in this vintage that offers particular value for money, good value? Yes. Uh, I mean, personally, I can't afford where the Premier Cruise and the Grand Cruise have got to, but there is so much good stuff to be had now in Burgundy, more than ever before, in the less famous villages, and it's partly because the uh, knowledge is spreading and that many more people are switched on and making good decisions, but also because global warming perhaps helps some of these sites, which were a little bit on the cool side before. So I've been doing a lot of walking around the vineyards and calling on vignerons in villages like Saramar, Ossidures, uh, Montly, or Massenet in the, uh, and finding things which I'm just really, really happy to drink. And I'm finding that I'm not resenting at all the fact that I can't have the allocations. Of it. <laughs> so actually, it may work in in buyers' favour if um, if the with, with global warming, the 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 higher sites that haven't necessarily always been particularly highly regarded are suddenly able to ripen, and yet they're still probably selling at the price they've always sold at traditionally. Uh, broadly speaking, yes, I think that's that's accurate. We have seen with the start of global warming, we saw the quality going up the hillside to the cooler spots. However, they are also drier on the whole because they got a lot less topsoil, steeper slopes and less topsoil. So now with 18 and 19 and probably 20, we're actually seeing an interest down at the bottom of the slopes where the soils tended to be too humid, which gave you rather rustic tannins and the wines were not that exciting. But the basic Bourgoins, whether they're red or white from the bottom of the slopes, are looking really interesting now. And so obviously um, that's one option in the face of global warming. Do you ever think it's going to go so far that um, people are going to have to reconsider Chardonnay and perhaps particularly Pinot Noir? 
I don't see how that can happen. I think what will happen is that Burgundy will just fall out of interest because it's very hard to believe that a wonderful musigny or chambertin made with Pinot Noir would work to the same way. It won't be the same vineyards that work well with different grapes. So at the moment, I think it's possible to manage it with changes in viticulture in particular, but also changes in how you make the wine. Uh, but there will come a moment if uh, Grace of Thunberg and others don't get their way, and if we don't pay enough attention, there will come a moment when Burgundy will be compromised. Just going back to the, the pricing, I mean, prices for Premier and Grand Cru Burgundy in particular seem to have risen inexorably over the past uh, few years. I mean, fueled in part by the, the smaller vintages, so a lack of availability. Um, now, you've made the point that some of the higher prices are actually down to the secondary market, not to what the producers originally charged. Very much so, yes. But but either way, do you think there's a, any danger that, that Burgundy might just price itself out of the sphere of, of normal wine lovers? or Or is it fair enough for good growers to to just cater for the minority who can afford it? Yes, uh, <laughs> there are no short answers to this because there are so many parts of the supply chain involved. I think it's fair to say that in general, uh, Burgundy hasn't been seeking to get the highest prices. Uh, it's not, they aren't particularly commercial animals. Uh, however, once they see that the secondary market is delivering these really quite extraordinary prices, and at this point, we should actually say that the great majority of the wine from a, of a particular producer in a particular vintage wasn't sold at those prices. It's just a few cases circulate later on and get snapped up, for example, at auction at very high prices. Then the growers start scratching their heads and say, look, if it leaves us at, say, 100 units and it's reselling at 1,500 units, what's going on here? And it's not that they necessarily want to make a vast amount more money themselves, though some are keen to, for sure. Yeah, wouldn't we all? More, they think, well, why are, we, why are speculators getting all this huge money in between? Um, and it is tricky to make the right decisions. At the moment, there isn't the sign of the slowdown, which I've been confidently expecting for quite a few years. Uh, and we've actually seen it. I thought that um, lockdown and the crisis in back in early or, uh, part of 2020 was going to mean that people would sit on their hands and stop spending a vast amount of money on top wines. But the auction market throughout the rest of the year of 2020 actually seems to be showing a further uplift. And it is discussed in Burgundy by the producers and they aren't particularly comfortable. And they remember also that they have a lot of long-term customers who've been buying from them for years, sometimes generations, who simply can't afford these prices. And they feel uncomfortable about uh, kicking some people out of the marketplace. So it's an ongoing tension, let's say. I can understand that. And you can you can sort of understand in some ways, you know, if people can't eat out in restaurants, then they're probably they probably do have the money to spend on wines to buy to drink at home. I mean, it may not be investment. Yes. It may be um, it may be largely drinking at home, really fine wine, which nobody can criticize. <laughs> um, well, I did a bit of that myself as well. well I think we've all done a bit of that. Tidied up all sorts of single bottles that have been sitting oh. there unloved. Well, I'm going to ask you about that in a moment. Um, what about the the new generation of Burgundian winemakers and um, the fact that growers tend to travel more these days, obviously not during the pandemic, but how is how is that changing Burgundy and Burgundy's wines? Certainly to, to some extent. Um, again, it's uh, multiple answers to this. And actually, we talk about a new generation, but of course, every year, if you've got several thousand domains every year, several of them are, are changing hands. Uh, but I do feel that there is 
an active new generation who are thinking beyond where my generation, which was really regarded as a new generation for about 20 years, they went on <laughs> generation, the people who were born at the late 50s, uh, sort of you know, Lafont, Rumier, Griffo, etc. Uh, but now there's a group born in and around 1988, so 30-ish uh, uh, crowd, Charles Lachaud, Charles Van Kennet. I mean, there's actually loads of them. I won't go into all the names. Um, and they are taking things further. They are very ecologically con uh, conscious. They're looking at new ways of doing viticulture. Uh, the traveling was starting before then. And a, a lot of the French producers have either been to um, sort of publicity events in the States or been around uh, wine areas in could be California, but a lot in New Zealand and Australia. And they picked up some ideas. They picked up some of the ways not to do things. They've become much more alert to bacterial spoilage, for example. Right. And lots of um, the new young guys from uh, these winemaking New World countries come and do uh, stage internships in Burgundy. And uh, there's a really, really good cross-pollination. I think that counts a lot. And, and just when you, you touched on the, the sustainability, what, what about organic and biodynamic? Are these young, the newer generation, are they more? I know there has been a movement for, for some years to, to that in, in Burgundy, mm. but is it ever more so? Well, I, very much so. And there's a, suddenly this last couple of years, a lot more people are getting certified uh, rather than just practicing it. So a lot of growers of the retiring generation have been organic for 20, 30 years, but have said, no, there's no way we're going to jump through the hoops and get certified. It's just about publicity. What matters is what you do. But as they uh, leave office, then the incomers are, um, are actually getting the certification, making it happen. And the really big companies, the Jadots and Bouchards and so on, they're all saying, right, it's time to do it. You know, it's, we can't just talk about it. We need to do it. So, so yes, very encouraging. Biodynamics too, uh, a lot. It's increasing slowly, but biodynamics is much more of philosophy and I don't think it is so necessary to be certified. One or two natural, fully natural, but not many in Burgundy. However, a lot are stopping using sulfur for vinification. Can I just pick up on that? So in one sense, the new world are bringing a certain influence of, of a cleaner, uh, mm. less spoilage or bacterial issues. On the other hand, there's a move towards a more slightly more natural, um, less interventionist uh, approach. How do those two marry? And then what do you taste? What's the result in the glass? OK, so the the cleaner means being aware of the aromatics of things like Brettanomyces and a smell that you probably took for granted, you're now being told is spoilage. So, okay, admittedly, this did happen a little while ago. So we're not talking about the last couple of years, we're talking over 20 years. Um, so that is one aspect to it. But uh, then in terms of what would seem to be greater risk-taking, it is to do with understanding the um, chemistry and biology and botany that, the, that goes on behind it. Uh, but you realize that you just don't need to have a blanket sulfur coverage. If you use less sulfur, then the grapes, the juice, the wine actually looks at providing some of its own protection. You've just got to survey it a huge amount more. You've got to be analyzing all the way along. You've got to be totally on top of what you do. So it's a lot more manners, it's a lot more care and control, but why wouldn't you want to do that? And, and happily, people do want to do that. Indeed. And it 
make a difference. For example, nowadays with global warming, a lot of people are more interested in using whole bunches, using stems in the vinification of their reds because they feel that freshens up the wines, uh, even though it reduces acidity, but it, it slightly reduces alcohol and it leaves a, a fresher feeling. Now, one of the reasons people might not want to use stems is because it theoretically gives you a greener, more herbaceous aspect to it. But it's probably the case that if you're using sulfur during the vinification, that's when you leach out the herbaceous aspects from the stems. So if you can vinify without using sulfur, you don't have that. That's just one illustration of many. That's really, really fascinating um brilliant explanation um just just thinking about these small slightly smaller producers that in a way we're, we're probably talking about although we we've obviously you've mentioned shadow and and those the larger people but um we've seen vineyards and, and domains sell for millions of late yes. you know to the big bigger corporate players um you know Claude Tart, Claude Lombre, Bonnet de Martre and of course um the French inheritance laws also make things difficult for the small-scale um family owners do you think Burgundy's in any danger of going too corporate and becoming a bit more like Bordeaux? The Burgundians can be sort of racist about people outside Burgundy uh, but they tend to hate the people who they're afraid of so a long time ago, they're afraid of Americans, and now they can uh, understand that it's fine. Then the Japanese, now that's fine. Uh, but sort of um, corporate big French companies and people from Bordeaux, they're a little bit, a little bit frightened of. Uh, actually, you named a few which are very high profile, but you didn't name all that many. And if you tried to add to that list, you could certainly add a few more, uh, uh, but not that many. And it's sometimes the case, not ones you mentioned, but there are certain names which have changed hands uh, where they were so underperforming before that it's just a relief to have somebody with proper financing who can make the changes and make sure it happens well. What the locals care about is that it is somebody on the ground who is Burgundian, who is running the show. Ownership is actually less important. Um, you're famous for saying there is no such thing as making wine in a Burgundian style. What do you mean by that? Well, Burgundy has got so many different ways of doing things. It's been one of the great strengths. Uh, I mean, Mr. Parker never really worked out in, in Burgundy. And I think many people would admit that he and certain uh, high-level consultants have at one period made too much Bordeaux taste too much in the same direction. And that's never really happened in Burgundy. There was always been countercurrents. You could have a school in one village where a few people were going a little bit too much towards high oak extract, dark colours, etc. But then the next door village was going in totally the opposite direction. Well, one generation did this, another one did that. One family did this. One family constantly quarrelling with each other will always do totally different things. So that's what I feel about it. And I don't quite understand. Uh, I mean, people were using it for PR to try to say that uh, you know, we're making better wine than our neighbours because we're making it in a Burgundian fashion. But at the same time, when you would be touring in New Zealand, Australia, California, you would also have people who were being pejorative about words, uh, the, the, the wines of the old country, saying, uh, you know, the, our wines are just as good, etc., etc. I tasted my wines blind against the Romney Conti and my wines won. I remember hearing that in McMinnville in Oregon in 1988. <laughs> wow. Now, Jasper, I'm going to ask you one final question, if that's OK. Um with much of the much of Europe and obviously the UK in lockdown, what's your ideal lockdown 
wine. Now, normally we only allow our guests one wine, but I think in the, on this occasion, I, I'm going to let you have one Burgundy and then a wine from elsewhere. What would you be drinking? The great bottles of wine are those when you open them, you pour them in the glass, first sniff, and you think, bing, this wine could not have been better made. And they can be baby wines, they can be great wines. And it's that is the real satisfaction. So one bottle during 2020, which just made my jaw drop, and I was able to get a second one of the same bottle, the same wine, uh, and it was uh, just as good. It was um, pre-war, red burgundy, uh, a domain wine from Louis Jadot. It was an unfamous vintage, 1938. And the appellation is going to stun you because it was a, the simplest of all Burgundy appellations. It was a Bourgogne Pasteur Gras from 1938. No. Uh, no, just, just... And it was just utterly gorgeous all the way through. In Pasteur Gras, you have the two grapes, um, Pinot and Gamay. It still felt as though you could separate them out and see the two of them working together. Isn't that incredible? That's extraordinary. I was going to ask you to explain Pasteurant, too grand. Um, that's just, oh, wow. And so 1938. 38, yes. Not at all one of the great vintages by any means. But still drinkable, still fresh, still blowing you yes. away? Yes. I mean, clearly an old wine. I mean, <laughs> but it held together. It had retained all the component parts that you wanted. It wasn't like drinking a faded bit of history. It was a real glass of wine. Just two of us shared it. Uh, uh, after a 1964 Macon Blanc. Uh, so so that, that's going to be my bottle. And something from somewhere else? We had during one of the Zooms um, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful bottle of a Californian Pinot Noir from my friend Jim Clendenen of Au Bon Climat. And it was Knox Alexander Vineyard of, I think, 2011 vintage. And it was incredible. And I sent an email off to Jim afterwards telling him how good it was. And he said, I should hope so too. We only made, he told me what the yield was. I don't remember the exact figures, but it was miniature. They'd been frosted. And he said, he works out that every single bottle of that wine that he sold, if he took in his, uh, if he took his cost price, subtracted what he sold it for, it cost him $250 to make every bottle of that wine. <laughs> I'm glad it was as good as it was. <laughs> Oh, that's just brilliant. Jasper, thank you so much. That's just brilliant. Thank you, Susie. 1938, Pastoucra. I, I mean, I, I can't really believe I'm saying it. <laughs> it does. It sounds amazing <laughs> it's and bonkers. extraordinary and, and bonkers. You're right, yeah. Um, and, and actually what it did, <clears throat> excuse me, it was it inspired us to taste one too, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. didn't it? So, mm. so we'll be doing that in the next episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll also be reporting on, I think it's fair to say, a very special Saint-Romain, you know, a name that Jasper also mentioned uh, to look out for, among other things, in, uh, in terms of looking for value. Mm. Um, but for now, just to follow on from all of this, we thought it might be helpful to um, come up with a brief summary, if you like, of the 2019 vintage, which is being sold at the moment, in case people are yeah. wondering um, whether to buy, what to expect. Absolutely, that, 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 yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah, so I mean, so in addition to what Jasper mm. said, I mean, 2019 is essentially a vintage that gave, uh, gave a small crop, um, from a, a warm, dry year, a kind of a drought year, if mm. you like. Um, the the watchwords in terms of the wines, um, both white and red, would be ripeness, uh, purity and acidity. Um, mm. Giles, uh, our friend Giles Burke Gaffney from Justerinian Brooks said, and I quote, a sunny but Burgundian vintage that offers depth and richness without heaviness. Yeah, and Giles has done a lot of tasting over the years um, yeah. of, of, of Burgundy, so he knows his stuff. So uh, 
a small vintage again for Burgundy. When you say again, yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've we've talked about the effect that this obviously yeah. has on prices. Um, I think I think most growers have held their their 2019 prices at similar to okay. 2018. So not an excuse just to ramp up the prices. No, again. I don't, well, I think everybody's so aware of of the mm, current mm, situation mm. in the world. Um, mm. I mean, interestingly enough, though, although the um, in the last sort of 15 years, I think Burgundy's had a lot of small vintages. 2017 and 18 weren't as small, mm. but we are back again um, to, um, there are reports of quantities being down about, well, anything from 30 to 60% in 2019 okay. compared with 2018. Yeah. Um, I mean, one little light at the uh, the end of the tunnel um, or bright spot is Chablis, which um, the volumes are up in Chablis a little bit on the five-year average. They've had a tough time lately, haven't they? Chablis, yeah, I think they have. So it's quite nice to see that, that uh, Chablis yeah. up a little bit. Yeah. But anyway, but, the, but this drop in volume is largely because of the drought and um, some other weather-related issues. There was frost in early April that affected bud burst, and then there was tricky sort of conditionings over the flowering. So mm. all of that mm. has has led to a much smaller crop. Yeah, but after that, quite sort of warm, sort of sunny. Yeah, uh, there was a season. lot of sunshine, lots of sunshine, lots of warmth. So you've got ripe fruit and um, relatively mm. generous wines, but but this this generosity, this ripeness seems to be allied to a uh, an unusual freshness of acidity in the wines mm. that the winemakers are describing as slightly because you wouldn't baffling. necessarily yeah. have those things together. Well, no. Either it would be an acidic no, no, vintage no. or it would be a ripe vintage. I think it's to do with the way the heat came. So there mm. were heat spikes in 2019, mm. but between the heat spike, as opposed to 2018, which was sort of apparently, you know, what everybody's saying is hot throughout mm. 2019 those heat spikes meant that in between it was cooler and so that allowed the the acidity to be retained mm. and actually um the acidity is tartaric acidity largely mm. again something that that remains in the wine so that's a, that's giving the freshness i'm that that's mm. the the okay. reason that they're not only rich and ripe but also fresh and if you're going to sort of describe the wines yeah, what kind of there are loads. I mean, yes, there are loads sort of, of words that things. you know. There are lots of words keep cropping up. Not just yeah. my words, yeah. you know, everybody else's mm. words. And um, you've got concentration and ripeness, as we've said, acidity and freshness, low pH, which means that you've got the the acidity. Um, there is higher alcohol in mm. in many cases, um, but balanced balanced wines um there's quite a bit of extract in the wines you know the the, the french term matière is used mm. quite quite regularly by mm. people um elegant tannins um terroir expression there seems to be a certain purity to the fruit that is allowing the terroir of each individual plot to to shine through and then i think the terms that i love most when we're talking about wines are are the the less um technical ones so people have described these wines as joy energetic mm. mm-hmm. um and i think that is what i'd be looking for in a, in a great great God, we all wine. need a bit, we all need a bit of joy, joy. right now don't <laughs> you? tell you what it sounds sounds pretty good yeah no it is and i think potentially um you know often people say well it's a white wine vintage or or we might describe it as a red wine vintage you know which is which color has has fared better but i think in this vintage um it seems to be pretty good in both colors it obviously depends on on how the fruit was grown mm. where mm. you know when it was picked how yeah. the wine was made um yeah, it but, sounds to me like a vintage in which the producers really really keep yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a it's it's a good vintage. I mean, in the in terms of whether you want to buy these wines, because obviously mm. so few people are trying them. If you want to buy them, somebody, um, um, well, Adam Bruntlett of Berry Brothers mm. said, in an uncertain world, the 2019 vintage offers reassurance. Customers can buy with confidence. Um, and I mean, obviously, he's selling yeah. the wine, so they, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've got to take it with a pinch yeah, of salt. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's I, I've you know 
come across that a lot that people are saying this is a lovely vintage to buy mm. I mean mm. the good news is actually that 2020 is looking pretty special too um, Jason mm. Haynes of Flint Wine said that I love this quote the 2020 vintage might be one of the few great things to emerge from this depressing year Nice Good on you, Jason. We need these. We need these positive. We need thoughts, something, don't, don't we? And thank goodness it's wine. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we wanted to feature, didn't we? Just a last point of view. Um, so we're going to hear from Rebecca Palmer, uh, buyer at Corney and Barrow, uh, the very venerable London wine merchant uh, that counts, uh, as we've said before, stellar names like Domaine de la Romilly Conti, but also uh, De Vogue, uh, Lachaud, uh, Claude oh, tons, Tart, tons of great uh, Burgundy uh, producers. Lefleur, you know, he's got really great Burgundy producers on their list. Yeah. I mean, and, and can we just say in the interests of a full disclosure here, mm. we actually recorded this interview last year um, for an episode that we were going to make on alternatives to Burgundy. So our, so our, our sort of favourite Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays made elsewhere in the world that could offer really good value. Uh, but unfortunately, that episode never ended up getting made mm. because um, a certain pandemic intervened. Yeah, it wasn't my fault. It was, it was definitely nothing to do, <laughs> to do with you. Um, anyway, we wanted to air this because um, because of the way Rebecca articulates her passion for Burgundy. And she also touches on things that Jasper did, like climate change mm. and seeking out good value. Well, I think Burgundy is just one of those great um, wine, classic wine regions of all time that everybody would like to get to know and whose wines are just the most sublime wines ever, really, when you actually feel end up feeling touched by a wine, moved by a wine. For me, it's always been Burgundy that's done that. They're wines with perfume, elegance, they're also refreshing. There's just something about the greatest wines which which can't be touched. I think probably the, the whole idea that, you know, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir are capable of just such extraordinary wines, aren't they? Yes, extraordinary. Um, it, in terms of you know, the um, perfume, the texture, their body, they're really quite extraordinary. And Burgundy is able to create these styles, which you know, obviously get imitated around the world and uh, very, very well in, in lots of different cases. But Burgundy just um, is something special and something apart. And obviously, I mean, it is special. But it's also very, very expensive. I mean, do you think mm. sort of today's prices for Burgundy are are really sustainable? Because it does seem that they're gradually creeping up and up, um, and they are pretty, pretty prohibitive for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, not even gradually creeping up. Uh, I think there's there's more than a gradual, there's more than a creep <laughs> going on. <laughs> um, but you know, certainly in the past decade. You know, in some cases, certain wines, certain appellations, certain uh, cru have more than doubled uh, in price in terms of the actual uh, ex-seller prices that we as a merchant would buy at. And you know, that's all about supply and demand, uh, really, uh, from, a, from around the world and also difficulties in terms of you know, vintage variation and and vagaries of, of climate and all the rest of it. And but I mean, it is becoming very difficult. It is. And for, for an average person, I think, to, to afford Burgundy. Mm. I mean, if you were to say to, to somebody who said, oh, I, I can't afford Burgundy, I love Chardonnay, I mm. love Pinot Noir, would you say there is somewhere else in the world that is doing particularly well? Well, there are different regions around the world. It depends where you're really, um, what sort of style you're wanting to try. In terms of styles or regions that are, are aping the styles of the Cote d'Or, you know, the Puligny-Montrachet, Merceau, um, you know, real top jewels. 
you're, you may be looking at Hawke's Bay or parts of Australia, you know, Adelaide Hills, or maybe, you know, Napa Sonoma uh, in some cases. But really, you, you come back to, to Burgundy and you're looking at villages that were perhaps in inverted commas considered lesser. You know, maybe you're going down to the south in the Maconnais or you're going to Premier Cru Chablis, for example, which is still outstanding value for money. Or some of the, you know, lesser villages like Saint-Romain, Haute-Côte, all around there, rather than those really top vintages, which are for many of uh, many of us, our customers and, and me included, <laughs> yeah, simply unapproachable now in yeah. terms of pricing. It, it just does become more and more difficult. And Exchange rates don't help. And Pinot? Somewhere else in the world P- than Pinot? Uh, Pinot, well, again, New Zealand, I would say. Um, parts of, well, obviously Sonoma, especially Sonoma Coast and, uh, and around there. Um, and it's never going to be cheap, is it? It's Decent never going to be. I mean, obviously Oregon, but again, you know, the prices are, are pretty impressive. But you can find really interesting Pinot now from... You know, from Romania, from you know, parts of southern France, you know, if you've got really interesting, you know, terroirs or little zones, yeah. there are pockets here and there. But Burgundy, yes, wonderful, but you know, now it has it comes with a price tag. And just looking to the future, looking forward, um, I mean, what is the future for Burgundy? Given particularly in the light of, of climate change, things are getting hotter. You know, Chardonnay mm. and Pinot bud early, which means they're then very susceptible to spring frosts. Quite. You know, they're going to bud earlier and earlier. So what what do you think? Do you think that's a problem? Is it going to be a problem? It already is a problem, you know. And yes, overall, the temperatures are getting are getting warmer but also there's the problem of you know timing as you say of the growing season when it comes to you know the length of that growing season and and the exact timing of what happens when and the susceptibility as you, as you say but also the erratic you know what we call weather events you know the hail but at uncertain times of year um, the frosts repeated but you know frosts that are perhaps worse than they ever were before and unexpected, you know, it's that erratic, that volatility that is particularly worrying and can literally decimate a crop from one day to the next. And we have to be, have to, I think, be realistic that there's going to be more and more of of that. I mean, who'd be a vignon? <laughs> Frankly. I just love the way she talks about being, what he says, being being touched, being moved by a wine. Isn't it wonderful? I think she's got, she's got a great way with words, uh, Rebecca, doesn't she? But um, so we're going to discuss or perhaps explore, would be a better word, this a bit more in the next episode, aren't we? Uh, Where we're going to hear from a wide cross-section of you guys uh, with your views on Burgundy, uh, which is going to be fascinating and and fun and fun definitely fun um but unfortunately that's all we have time for in in this episode don't miss the next one which is going to be a blast of mm, course it is they, all are. they are all a blast and in the meantime if you like what you've heard here please do leave a positive rating and review on your listening platform of choice even if you've done so already it really really helps uh, the show and of course, boosts our morale, yeah. which is extremely helpful and much appreciated right yes. now, I can tell you. <laughs> yes. So thank you to Jasper Morris and to Rebecca Palmer. And thank you, of course, to you for listening. Stay safe, drink well and cheers. <laughs>